please open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 22 through 32, Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. And really, we are reading this in light of the passage we've been going through, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and really one phrase that we started last week and will continue on for several weeks, and that phrase is, the man is the head of a woman. So that's kind of our 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 bounding text, but then we've moved here to really kind of flesh that out as we spend some time this morning considering what it is for a man to exercise headship over a woman. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Please be seated. Now, how does the world define what it means to be A man. Well, there are lots of stereotypes. Maybe the typical stereotype, good-looking, big muscles, good at sports, big truck, packs a gun, maybe a flamethrower. Maybe kind of the countercultural, anti-establishment man, well-tattooed, cynical and sarcastic, smart and witty, creative. In terms of pop culture, maybe it's a bit like Dwayne The Rock Johnson versus Jack Black, Tom Cruise versus Tom Hanks, stoic versus hiccup. If you have no idea who any of those people are, that's fine. Now, what biblical masculinity is not is any of those stereotypes, right? There's plenty of ways manhood can flesh itself out in any particular culture, but it is not those, and it's not these others. Say, a physical stereotype, right? It's not that, you know, a man is defined by big muscles, deep voice, tall and gruff, kind of the emotional stereotype. He doesn't cry, doesn't show emotion, he doesn't have genuine compassion, Maybe the conservative stereotype, he's gun-toting, sports-loving, libertarian, likes to hunt and fish and kill things. The liberal liberal stereotype, passive, apologetic, effeminate, overly emotional, wears skinny jeans and square-rimmed glasses and has messy hair. How about the homeschool stereotype? Owns five acres, builds ropes course in his backyard, raises chickens and grows a beard. Something wrong with those things. That's a stereotype, right? Uh, Maybe the Jordan Peterson stereotype, responsible, hardworking, dangerous, desirable, and totally secular. Well, the principles of biblical masculinity have many different cultural expressions. Don't fixate on them. That isn't what they are about. And we get in serious trouble when somehow we start defining manhood in light of either how it's expressed externally or how our culture defines it or how some subset of our Christian culture defines it. We're not defined by the external stereotypes. We're defined by the biblical principles manifesting themselves in character, which reflects in biblical action. This is a man. Don't confuse. And by the way, don't confuse cultural necessities even with biblical character. 200 years ago, a man had to hunt and fish to survive. Today, you are better off teaching your child how to drive, use a computer, interview a job, and work hard. We're not going back in time. We've got to do these things back then because that was biblical manhood. Well, I mean, you rarely have to kill anything today to stay alive, 
all right? You can go to Walmart, just get the meat. It's there. All right, so we're not going backwards. We're simply trying to live out biblical principles in light of the culture that we have, not claim a culture that doesn't even exist. So we've got to be really careful with those things. And really, we have to be super careful that we don't allow men to live out their desires within the stereotypes we give them. Richard Phillips says, pretty much what modern and postmodern masculinity has been all about is this, men behaving like little boys forever, serving themselves in the name of self-discovery. It's just little boys. I mean, it's just you know, teenagers that can't ever grow up. So we want to make sure that we don't live according to any of those stereotypes. We want to return to an understanding of true biblical masculinity. We have stated that there is such a thing. Because there are stereotypes, it doesn't mean there doesn't have anything to do with what to be being a man is, and that being a man is different than being a woman. Those are not the same things. So we're not eliminating the distinctions between manhood and womanhood. We just are not living according to the stereotypes of manhood and womanhood. We want to look into the pages of Scripture for instruction on manhood and its example in the character of Christ. Long before Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, Doug Wilson started calling out men for their weakness and passivity, the leaders of the church and your moms and dads were looking into the Bible and teaching and modeling the proper characteristics of biblical manhood. The question is, were you listening? Have you been listening to what your parents, most of you, taught you? Have you been listening to what the church, most of the churches you were in, taught you? Or did you go astray because you, you bought your own selfish desires and those of the culture? The Bible is not silent on this topic. It has not been silent. And the church has not been silent on this topic. Men have ignored the church. They've pushed the church aside. I mean, you can pick up something like Augustine's Confessions, 397 AD, to see what a godly man looks like. How about the godly man's picture? Puritan Thomas Watson, 1663. Thoughts for Young Men, J.C. Ryle, 1886. The Masculine Mandate, Richard Phillips, 2009. The biblical principles laid out there are the same. Right? Those are the things that a man is to be, and it's not the time he lives in. It's the principles of Scripture that have been stated. The church has not lacked resources to promote and encourage proper manhood. Unfortunately, the church has capitulated in adopting its view of manhood, both in teaching and practice. So we don't want to promote cultural, conservative, or liberal stereotypes. We want to promote biblical commands and principles. At the end of the day, we want men who model Christ, who exalt Christ, and who submit to the authority of Christ. What we'll see this morning is that a man exercises proper headship over a woman only when he subjects himself to the authority of Christ, cultivates the character of Christ, and leads his wife and family to accomplish the work of Christ. A man exercises proper headship over a woman only when he subjects himself to the authority of Christ. To cult he cultivates the character of Christ. He leads his wife and family to accomplish the work of Christ. A man's headship has its goal in the exaltation of Christ, not in the exaltation of himself. Now we, again, as I mentioned, we read Ephesians 5, but we are working our way through 1 Corinthians 11 and the one phrase, all right? We began, well, there's three phrases on headship in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11 or Christ is the head of every man, and we talked about that. And we began last week talking about the fact that the man is the head of a woman. What does this mean? We gave a definition, right? the definition of headship, man, male, over a woman, female. Right? Definition of headship is in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman. The man bears the primary responsibility to lovingly lead the partnership with the help and counsel of the woman in a God-glorifying direction. The man will answer to Christ for his role of authority in leading the partnership of a man with a woman. He will answer. It is the man who will answer to God for this. 
So that's headship. And then we talked about the origin of headship. Men didn't invent this. White men didn't invent this. Uh, white, male, Protestant, uh, Western European men did not invent this. God invented this. And he built this idea of headship into the very creative act. Remember, men were created first. That wasn't an accident. Right? The, man, the woman was created for the man. The man needed a helper. Now, she's equal with him in every way, but the way the creation was, was accomplished by God gives us an understanding of the roles that men and women live. Woman was created in that sense, right, for man, and woman was created from man. She was not created in the same way that he was. She was created as a rib was taken from him. So she was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. So all of that is before the fall. These roles, proper headship, proper leadership, proper submission, proper helping, all were built in to the, the created order before the fall. But when the fall came, when men fell into sin, then those, that order was reversed or that order was harmed. Where the woman now tries to usurp the man's headship. Says, we, we read the verse, she, she had, her desire is for her husband. That isn't to love him and care for him, that's to overtake him. That's to step into his role. And then the man tries, in in response to that, he tries to dominate the woman in whatever way that he can, physically, manipulation, control, whatever it might be. This is the fall, not proper headship and submission, not proper biblical, what we call complementarianism, where there are roles within marriage on the basis of the fact that men were made male and female. So let's this morning talk about the responsibilities of a man in headship. And first, the responsibility of, of oversight. There are really two responsibilities in headship. The man is to lead, to oversee, and the man is to love. Those are not separate things. They're simply two parts of one task. But we're going to look at them in, in uh, two separate ways. This morning, we'll only cover oversight. Next week, we'll talk about what it is for the man to express that in love. But it is important to understand that there is a real authority that goes along with this. Just because it's not a Doug Wilson-style authority or a, a harsh, uh, you know, a patriarchal kind of authority, there's real male authority in headship, and he is to oversee his home as well as to oversee the church, and this is vital that we understand this. We're not undoing this, but I want to remind you that although we'll be talking uh, much about the nature of a man in relationship to his wife, that headship relationship, we've talked about this, and it is true that man and a woman are related in this headship relationship in unique ways in the church and even in society. So in essence, what we're, what we're saying is that the real man is a lover of womankind, all right? That is not just the physical characteristics that appeal to his sex drive. There's only one woman who is to relate to him in that way. A man is to love women because of their created characteristics which reflect their unique values as women created in the image of God. A man is to recognize the value of, to protect, guard, and encourage the value of a woman in society. This includes their ability to bear and nurture children, creativity, sensitivity, diligence, unique perspectives. That is, a man recognizes, he promotes and protects the value of the unique characteristics of women in every sphere of life, home, church, workplace, culture. He pursues sexuality with only one woman. That's a unique one flesh relationship, but a man is to pay attention to and be responsible for the way that women are protected, guarded, and treated in culture. And that's not patronizing. A man is to use his strength to accomplish those things at every time in culture. And so it's not only that a man relates to a woman in marriage, men are relating to women everywhere. 
And they are to do so properly and biblically in every sphere in which a man is given by God. Now, first and foremost, the responsibility of a man in oversight, right? That is, he is to guide and direct what happens in the home and in the church in a way that pleases God. So there's an authority there that says, we're going this way, not this way. There's a leadership of this. There's a direction that's involved. The first thing a man must be, if he is going to accomplish his responsibility of oversight in this headship, is that he must be a man of character. He must be a man of character. You cannot exercise authority apart from character, or at least you cannot exercise it well. You will be a poor leader, a poor overseer, if you don't have character. And these are not personality traits. A man does not have to have any certain personality to be a proper leader in the home or in the church. Every personality type lends itself to proper biblical leadership, every one, because the characteristics I'm going to mention are spiritual characteristics. That is, they are built by God into the inner man of an individual, right? his mind, his will, his affections, his conscience. So every man has different personality with which they will flesh out these characteristics, but these are necessary characteristics of biblical leadership, and every man without exception is called to lead. Every man. This is what is given men to do. So how do they do this? They have to first be spiritual. This is a characteristic. That is, it's a, it is a character quality where their entire life is built around spiritual things. And most specifically, that the entire orientation of their life is to please and honor God. That's what it means to be spiritual. This is reflected in verses like Philippians 1.21. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's not just some over-the-top statement of an apostle. Right? That is a required statement. Certainly, that's for men and women. But if we're talking about men in relationship to their responsibilities, they must be this. Men, is it true that for you to live is Christ? Or is it for you to live is your career? For you to live is your family? For you to live are your hobbies? You fill in the blank. Now, you can do all of those things in light of Christ, but is your primary goal in living to exalt and glorify Jesus. That's what it means. Everything about what brings you greatest joy in life is Christ, not you, and not the accomplishment of your objectives. It is the pleasing and exalting of Jesus. Men, we take stock this morning on this. Could you say that? Can you say that with the Apostle Paul? Not that you've lived that out perfectly, not that you don't fail in that, that you, you know, there are times when other things are more important to you, but is that your goal? It is required to be. That's, it is the goal of a Christian, and certainly the goal of a Christian man, and certainly the necessary goal if you're going to lead your home, lead the church, and lead in society in a way that pleases God. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, my career is over, and I won't have, my, you know, won't have the toys that I had. Well, of course not. Sin will be burned away from you, and you will now have the opportunity to, to reach the culmination of everything that you lived for, which was Christ, and now when you die, you receive all of that in fullest measure with a relationship with Christ, with sin burned away. Men, is that why you look forward to heaven? I get to ski, ski vacations. I don't have to you know, work hard anymore. No, you will see, know, love, pursue Jesus to the fullest extent. You live for that reason, and you die for that reason. So death for you is gain. Because all the things that kept you from fully serving Christ will be gone. Presence, he's now will be there. You'll be in his presence. Sin, gone. Wrong desires, gone. And that's fundamental. A spiritual quality about every man will enable them to properly lead. 
And to the extent that you are that is the extent that you will be a good leader. Philippians 3, go ahead and turn there. Paul just lays this out in such clear terms. Philippians 3, as he, as he speaks of what it means, really this idea of, of for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Why? Well, this is what he says in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ. You see, a man sets aside his other desires, not just because he's told to, not just because, you know, some Bible-thumping preacher yelled at him that he should do that. He puts aside everything for the purpose of loving Christ because Christ is greater than all those other things because he is more worthy than all those other things, because the greatness of satisfaction, the greatness of all the the true desires of life is found in Christ. And everything else in comparison is like dung. It doesn't mean mean everything is dung, everything is worthless. It means in comparison it's like that. The greatest of things on earth that we could experience and enjoy, the satisfaction we would have in those is, is infinitely less than the satisfaction we are to find in Christ. Men, how are you doing this morning? This will reflect in your marriage, it will reflect in your church, it will reflect in your pursuit of marriage if you are in that state, it will reflect in your being a child in your home. Are you spiritual? Do you count all things as lost for the sake of Christ? Next, a man needs to be courageous. I've only picked a couple of characteristics. I mean, every characteristic of Christ is what a man should be, but some of the ones that relate directly to leadership and oversight... Man's going to have to be courageous. We need men who are willing to stand up in this world, but not in the harsh, hard, you know, maybe toxic view of, that is even being taken now sometimes in Christianity. Kind of Mark Driscoll, macho, you know, I'm going to get in the face of everybody and I'll show you, I'll burn everything down because I'm a man. That's, that's not courage. Courage is the ability, the the spiritual confidence due to trusting in the Lord and taking hold of his strength to venture into, persevere in, and triumph over danger and difficulty and fear in pursuing the goals of Christ and beating everybody up and burning everything down and owning everyone on Twitter. It is a true courage which overcomes sin, which pursues Christ. Joshua 1.8. It's all built around, fascinating, as Joshua is, is, is encouraging, or God is encouraging Joshua as he's about to enter into the most difficult of tasks, is to conquer an entire country, right? Thousands upon thousands of hateful people in those nations that wanted to, have, wanted to see him dead and destroy him. He's going to have to take his nation, a, a difficult and rebellious nation, and lead them into this, all for God's glory, to accomplish God's purposes, He has a daunting task ahead of him. And God comes to Joshua and says, he lays the groundwork for courage. This book of the law, Joshua 1.8, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do according to everything that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. You want to accomplish what I want? You want to accomplish my goals? You want to accomplish the purposes of God in your generation, Joshua? Then you're going to have to meditate on my law and put it into practice, and then you will be successful. And after that, he says in verse 9, have I not commended you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The necessity of the Word of God, and that's how the Word of God, in that sense, or God goes with us through His Word in the power of His Spirit as we pursue those things. But men... You can then be courageous in the difficulties that you have to overcome, both spiritual and physical. And there are many 
We live in a difficult world. We live in a world that requires us to persevere in triumph over and venture into danger and difficulty and overcome our fear. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. See, godly, manly courage. Paul says, after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we got beat up in Philippi, thrown into prison, beaten and put in the stocks. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. They got out of prison, walked to the next place with the wounds healing on their backs and began to preach the same message which caused the problem in the first place. You want courage? There it is. You don't have to kill things. You don't have to flamethrow stuff. You got to get up and keep serving God when people are going to beat you up. They're going to hate you and despise you, harm you actually physically. Courage says, in Christ, I can accomplish those things, even if it takes me unto death. Unto death. So it's the courage to fight against sin. Men, it takes courage to get up every day and fight the enemy of sin within and the enemy of sin without. The culture is not your enemy. It reflects sinful tendencies, certainly. Your sin is your enemy, and the evil one is your enemy. Those are the things you fight against. We don't fight against flesh and blood, all right? Put down the social media attacking everything around you, and we're going to fight all of that. You just need to look inside and fight the sin that's there. Men, do you have the courage to overcome your pornography habit, the courage to overcome your anger at your spouse or anger at your children, the courage to overcome your inordinate desire to be magnified at work, and so you do wrong things and, 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 and treat your work wrongly? You name it. Do you have the courage to get up every morning and fight against sin to kill it? You don't need to kill other things. You need to kill your sin, mortify it, put it to death. It takes courage, moral courage, to defeat your sin. Oh, I'm going to shake my fist at the stuff going on in culture, and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to sin in my head by lusting over women. What kind of courage is that? I mean, we all wrestle with it. I'm, I'm, I'm calling every man out because it's the same for me. But nonetheless... Like I meant to do all these other kinds of things and say they're courageous and they can't overcome the sin within. They get angry, they yell, they're selfish, they might be quiet and calm and yet utterly devoted to themselves. Do you have the courage, men, to get up every morning and slay your selfishness that drives you to accomplish just your own things? It causes you to whine and complain and be angry and bitter. You're going to have to fight against sin. Yeah, you're going to stand firm against the culture. The culture will make you pay for not adhering to its rules. It takes courage to stand against those who would mock you, belittle you, and persecute you, but only as that reflects Christ. I don't say mock you because you don't have certain cultural accoutrements that they say men ought to have. No, because they hate you because you look like Jesus. That's going to take some courage. And men, you're going to have to cultivate that courage in Christ. Your Savior stood in that way, and that's how we stand. You're going to protect those around you. You're going to protect women physically and spiritually. Yeah, we, we want to build our church culture and build our family culture around the proper kinds of protection and guarding, both physically and spiritually. But spiritual is first. Because if someone dies and they know Jesus, what Paul says is they've gotten delivered to safely to the heavenly kingdom. Safely. In 2 Timothy 4, he was about to have his head cut off, and he says, look, the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack. Really? You're about to have your head cut off. I'm delivered. Why? He says, and he will deliver me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Yes, we want to make physical provision as we can. But the first thing you focus on, do the people around you know and love Jesus? Because then if they die, they're safe. In fact, they're safer. They're as safe as they could possibly be. Right, so we, we bring protection as we can. 
but we want to provide spiritual protection by proclaiming the gospel and living the gospel. But a man will put his, himself in harm's way. He will do whatever it takes to try to make that kind of provision in all different ways. And a man who is courageous will take responsibility for his actions. That's courage. If you sin, own it. Stop making excuses. Well, hon, you said this, and you did this, and kids, you did this, and my, my work was hard, so that's why I did this. I'm struggling with a sickness, so that's why I did this. Hey, those things all help you sin. I totally understand. Own it. Stop making excuses. You are not a victim when you sin. You are not, men, you are not a victim when you sin. My wife hasn't responded to me for six months, and so I can sin in this way. No, you can't. Courage says I won't. And if I have to fight this till Christ returns, I will have the moral, spiritual courage to stand up and put my desires away. Men, this is hard work. This is hard work. It's a lot harder than your physical work, most likely. Well, most certainly. Now, when you make a mistake, will you admit it? Yeah, that's me. That's mine. I own it. And I'm going to do what the Lord would have me to do to overcome that mistake. Because we don't always sin. Sometimes we just blow and make bad decisions. It's not all sin. Own it. Again, stop making excuses. Men, we're so good at justifying the reasons that we don't do what we're supposed to do. How would I know that? Because that's what I do. Right? We may not, as men, put the responsibility for our sin or our decisions on somebody else. Men, you want courage? It's not jumping off a building. It's not strapping on a wingsuit and flying around. Right? It's just not flame-throwing everybody in the culture with your Twitter tweets. True courage is fighting sin, standing for what is right, and doing that day in and day out when nobody knows and nobody cares. Not even your own family. Sometimes your own family will fight you. Your own wife will fight you in this. You remain firm. You do what is right. Because that's what men do. And when they do it, the world has changed. It has changed when men will stand. Courageous. Diligent. Dylan, you can't, be, you can't have courage without diligence. Courage is not a five-minute-a-day practice. Courage is an all-day practice, and so it takes diligence. What's diligence? Exercising maximum effort and skill in the accomplishment of every task while seeing it through to the most satisfactory conclusion possible. Diligence. Exercising maximum effort and skill in the accomplishment of every task while seeing it through to the most satisfactory conclusion possible. Possible. Men, you're trying to do everything with excellence and everything with full effort until it's done or it just can't be done. Right? That does happen. You, don't, you aren't able to finish everything. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily with full effort as to the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Every effort given at every task the Lord has given fullness. Now, you have to divide your effort, right? The fullness of every. You can't just do one thing and pour all of your life into it because you've got those other things. It is full effort as it is managed over an entire life of caring for your family, going to work, going to the church, doing these things. But I would ask you, do your wives wish that they could be released from the exhausting duties of the home because your laziness in your work makes it look appealing? Men, think about that. The way you pursue your work, your wives go, woohoo, man, it'd be great if I could get rid of these three kids and I could go do your work because you're lazy. Now, they might not understand your work, but, but is it, do you live a life 
that would make your wife love to do that because it's a lot easier than what she does. Now again, what your wife does is always going to be harder than what you do. But you ought to give maximum effort at every place. Maybe your work's not all that hard, but you should give full effort to it, and then you're building your life around your life, all the other work that you're supposed to do. There's just more work to be done. And you don't walk in the door and go, I did my work, I provided. And I got spiritual work to do and physical work as well. You walk in the door ready to work. Men work. They work diligently all the time. You can play, that's fine. I mean, enjoy the good things that you do. But even that's work because you're being spiritual in that. You're, you're pleasing God in your play. You're not saying, well, you know, I'm going to kick back and just do stuff that doesn't honor God. Men, you are always working. And God gives you the strength to do this. This is infinite, limitless power to be diligent. In this diligence, a man plans. He doesn't simply respond to situations. He plans ahead to reach the best possible outcome. This is not a personality type. There are men that plan better than others. You are called to count the cost. Jesus said this. What man, when he's going to build a tower, doesn't count the cost? What man? Well, I, I didn't think about that. I didn't plan. I'm not a planner. Type A personalities, they plan. I just kick back. No, you plan. You make a plan for the things that God has for you in your family, in your workplace. Diligence initiates. You don't wait to be asked or told what to do. Where appropriate, you take the lead in accomplishing what is needed, but you're always thinking about initiating. Men initiate. It's not a personality type. I'm just a passive man. I don't initiate. You're not living out biblical principles. You're to guide and direct. Your home is to look like look certain ways because you are initiating that. It doesn't mean you do it all. It doesn't mean that your wife isn't also a good initiator and she initiates something and goes, no, I initiate, so I'll be out of the way. No, you're great. Now I'm going to respond to that by pressing forward. A man initiates. He actively involves others. Men don't just do this all on their own. I'm not calling men, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be a little bit more independent man. He involves his wife if he's married. He involves others so that he can be, have the proper kinds of success that he needs. You're not called to do this on your own. And particularly if you're married, you're never called to do it by yourself. You always should have involved your wife, always should have talked with her, always should have drawn out her skills and gifts. And then he proactively gathers resources. This is what men do. They gather resources. They, they understand, okay, we'll need this and we'll need this and we're going to have to go get this and we're going to have to provide this. You bring the necessary resources to accomplish the work that God has given you to do. This is being diligent. Men, you're going to have to be spiritual, courageous, diligent, and humble. Humble. Humility maintains a proper perspective of who you are in light of God's greatness and the importance of others. That's humility. Oh, I'm poor me, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. That's arrogance. Look at me because I'm nobody. No, stop looking at you. Nobody should look at you in that way. They need to see Christ in you. And so it's not poor me, I can't do anything. You're saying Christ can't do anything? You're saying Christ is worthless, look at me, nobody, nobody appreciates me. You're saying nobody appreciates Christ? Of course they do. It's not about you. It's not about what you didn't do. It's about reflecting the Lord Jesus. So this humility maintains a proper perspective of who you are in light of God's greatness and the importance of others. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness. Or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A man is humble. He maintains proper perspective. He doesn't shake his fist at other men. Wow, see how great I am. It's humility that's involved there. It's not, it's not an effeminate characteristic. This next one isn't either. He's kind and compassionate. Always, you can be strong. Jesus was strong. He properly exercised, you know, the kinds of strength necessary at every different place, but he was never less than kind and compassionate. It's not one or the other. 
down with compassion, enough with compassion, we beat people up now. That's manly. No, always there is kindness, compassion, gentleness, and grace. What is kindness? Empathy with the needs and aspirations of others. A desire to see each person or to do to each person the greatest amount of good possible, which is always that they would know and love Jesus. You look at every person saying, how can I do you the most good possible, empathizing with who you are, your wrestles and your struggles? Matthew 9, 36, Jesus gets off the boat. Remember, he's looking for a place to be with his disciples after a very difficult time. He's going to spend time with his team and prepare for the work ahead, and the people have gotten there ahead of him, and they want his, they want his healing, they want his food, they want everything from him. They were not there to worship him, not there to honor him, they were there to take from him. Every, they would take everything that he could give. And he gets off the boat, and he shakes his fist at them and says, I'm giving you nothing. Of course he doesn't do that. Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. These aren't nice people, a bunch of saints wandering around, you know, just wanting to do the right thing. He calls, I and mean, we look at our world, Oh, evil people out there, abortionists and transgender and homosexuals and angry, arrogant people and Democrats, all these people. They're distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You're not going to be arrogant about that. We have a righteous understanding of, of sin and we, we have a, right, a kind of righteous anger against that. But our society is dispirited and distressed. They are sheep without a shepherd. Do you have the kind of compassion that is able to continue to view that as you fight against sin? If you lose that, you've lost the perspective of Jesus and you are disqualified in this fight. That is the problem with so much of what is going on even in Christian manhood. You lose sight of this, the compassion and kindness which sees even those who are fighting against you and who are truly hating God, even those as distressed and dispirited, sheep without a shepherd, you lose that perspective you cannot lead. So this is what men need to be. And prayerfully, men, as we wrestle with these things, we will take hold of the strength of God to accomplish them. Well, what's the task, though? So, so a man, if he's going to accomplish his oversight task, he has to be a man of character, but he has to know what his task is. That's number two. What are you, what are you supposed to be doing, men? What are you overseeing? Well, you're overseeing the accomplishment of God's mandate for the family and the church, and even for society, but the family and the church fulfill that in our New Testament dispensation. You are overseeing the accomplishment of God's mandate for the family, not your mandate. Well, I want to do this, and I want my family to do this, and so, you know, you, get, you have your wife, she marries you, and we're going to accomplish this. I'm going to be, you know, financially independent by such and such a time. We're going to go and live here and retire over here, uh, and, and we're going to have some land, and it's not about your mandate. What has God called every family, every individual, every church to do? And there is one thing. There's lots of things we do within that, but God has given a mandate for the family, and you are responsible to God for doing everything that you can to direct the relationship of the family and the church to the task of a God-glorifying conclusion. Man, you cannot make everything happen. You can't even, you can't make your wife respond to you. She's going to hate God and walk away from him. But you in your family can do all that you is possible for you to do to direct that family and direct that church towards the things of God. Churches blow up. They split. They, men, you can't determine the outcome. You can determine your behavior of directing every outcome towards a God-glorifying conclusion as God brings the results. And you are responsible to do this. 
Eve sinned first. Who got the blame? Who got the blame? Adam. They both suffered the result of the curse. It wasn't like, well, the woman gets off scot-free when she sins. Now, you will suffer, ladies, the results of your sin, the discipline of God, the consequences that happen. But men, you are responsible for the tone of the direction of and the things that go on in your family and in the church to please the Lord. And, and God will hold you accountable. I, many years ago, I taught on this. I was getting all excited about a man's responsibility. I'm like, men, the first thing God will ask you when you step into heaven is, how did you treat your wife? And one of my elders said, really? It's the first thing he's going to ask? How do you know that? I don't. I, and and I, whether he's even going to ask that kind of question, I don't know. Is he going to hold you accountable for what you did? Yes. Yes, you men. And that's, a, that's the unique relationship you have with God, with Christ. He holds you accountable. And I say, well, my wife didn't do it. And, and she didn't want to do it. And the church, they just didn't want to do that. Now, this is what you fought for. To oversee the accomplishment of God's mandate for the family. What is that? that there's the question, right? Well, it's different for every family, right? We all have different... No, it isn't. There's one mandate for every Christian family. Every one. And one mandate alone. What is it? To participate in the equipping of the body of Christ for the making of disciples in preparation for the return of Christ. That's it. You can do lots of other stuff in that. You can enjoy your hobbies within that. You've got different careers within that. You have different numbers of family members within that. But there's only one mandate. And men, that's what you are required to accomplish. Do you know that? When I do my premarital counseling, this is like the first thing I do. Men, do you understand that you are calling your wife to accomplish the purposes of God? Not your purposes, not her purposes. God's purposes. And he has one purpose. He's making disciples in anticipation of his return and building the body of Christ. That's certainly universal, right? The church universal, all believers, but it has its reflection in a local congregation to which you connect. We've talked much about that. The one primary task that all men and women have been given is to make disciples. This is the only divinely instituted means, or the only divinely instituted means of making disciples is where? The church. There's no other means. God didn't design anything else. He doesn't say, I'm building my corporation. I'm building my church. Matthew 28, 19. You're like, show me, show me. Well, okay, Matthew 28, 19. The mo- I mean, you all know this verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the New Testament commission. It's not physical dominion over the earth. It is the making of disciples until Christ returns again through the building of the church. And that's the one task. How are you doing, men? Everything directly, your career. See, it's, it's like this. The Christ is in the center of everything you do, of who you are. The rest of your life is like spokes of a wheel. You've got your career, and you've got your family, and you've got your hobbies, and you've got all those other things. And that all connects into one wheel, which is what? The church, the making of disciples. Christ, everything in your life connecting to the church, and that's the wheel that rolls through the world. It's not, like it's, there's no, it's not a hierarchy. Well, there's God, and then there's family, and then there's church, and then there's work. All of those things fit into Christ accomplishing his work in the church. And every part of your life is then built around that. Men, are you leading properly? As you think about your career, as you think about your family, tying that into what is God doing in building the church and how am I helping do that? Ephesians 4.15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, right, the body of Christ, the church, being fitted together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. If you as a Christian are to have the proper working of each of the individual parts 
What are you doing? It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's the proper working. When you work properly, the church is built. When you don't work properly, the church is not built. And your family is to build into that. It's not separate from that. It's not on par with that. It builds into that. Now, that, of course, means, B, in order to do that, a man is to establish a healthy, Christ-honoring home environment. It's not that the family doesn't matter. The family is built around the reality of the church. And so, men, you are called to establish a healthy, Christ-honoring home environment. You are responsible before God to lead your family to accomplish the task God has given them to do. You are to do so in a way that provides for their spiritual and physical growth and flourishing. This is your call. Physical provision certainly is part of that. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith, he's worse than an unbeliever. You are called to provide physically so your, so your family can stay alive and accomplish the work of the church and enjoy life. Food and clothing, by the way, and I would say maybe food and covering, that is that your family has enough to eat, that they have clothes to put on so they don't, so they don't freeze to death, and they have a place to stay. I think that's all about it. But men, that's it. You're not required to do other than that. So many men want to excuse, well, I got to do this. And their wives say, well, we need to do this. And we got to have this. And house has to look like this. Guys, all those are good things God provides. But you're not required to make all those kinds of provisions. You're required food covering. And then a joyful spiritual environment which enables you to, to receive whether it's little or much. So there's 1 Timothy 6, 8, for we have brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we will be content. But there's also the providing of good things as you are able. 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What a blessing. But you need to understand that in most societies around the world, many a husband is simply trying to keep his family alive. That's it. And you know what? That's entirely pleasing to God. A man is fully accomplishing his purposes when his family stays alive and when they love Jesus or he is working that that would be the case. And you don't have to live in America and have all the extras to do that. And in fact, that has nothing to do with your spirituality, men. Well, God blessed me, so I've got... Nope. I mean, he blessed you. But those are not the necessary things. And by the way, generally, a family is not going to appreciate those things if you're not giving spiritual oversight, as we've said. The primary issue is that the tone of your home is directed towards Christ. You promote and encourage your wife's spiritual health, Ephesians 5, 26. You love your wives as Christ loved the church. You might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Turn off the television. Put down your phone. Put it down. Walk into your home, take your phone, put it on the desk, and don't pick it up. You're killing your home. You are to be developing a godly, joyful, spiritually enriched home environment, and you can't do that when you're staring at your phone. Enjoy a game. Sit down with your wife and play a game on your phone. The phone isn't the evil but do not allow it to dominate your behavior. Whatever form of media, well, maybe you walk into the back room and, and, you know, and work on your woodworking project. It doesn't have to be a, a media issue. You are developing a godly spiritual atmosphere in your home, and men, you are responsible for this. Yes, your wife will help you. She will, she will strengthen you. She will probably give you most of the good ways that you can do that. Honey, let's do this, and let's try this, and let's do this. Great. But you are in charge of making sure that that 
happens. Men, what are you doing? How are you doing? Distracted at home? I did my work. No, you have work to do. You are overseeing the spiritual nature of your home. That doesn't mean you're doing all of it. You're gone most of the time. Your wife is building into the children with spiritual truths that you are, because you've been washing her. So you're not doing all of that, but you're making sure that it is being done and you are, you are building it when you get home. You're bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4, don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I need to do this last one. It's important, men. In, in, in spiritual oversight, right, you are also making the final decision. There is real authority here. You are called to make the final decisions. Ladies, we'll talk about this in submission when it comes in a couple of weeks. The men are responsible to make this decision as they work it through, as they talk it out, but they are required. And when they make that decision, they are to be followed. I'm not undoing that. That's absolutely true. But in what? So I need to flesh this out just a little bit. Right? Because it's clear, Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. When the husband directs, the wife is to follow. When the leaders of the church direct, the church is to follow. All right, so there is real authority that needs to be responded to. But in what? Well, certainly in matters, so just you can pen these down quickly underneath this. In matters of biblical command, in your home, men, you are required to hold those principles. Now, you can't force people to do them, but you are required to say, this is what we are to do, right? Biblical commands. If it's a command, you don't have any choice. You can say, we're not doing that, not in this home, I don't want to do that. Or your wife says, we, I don't want to do that. Your kids say, I don't want to. If it's a biblical command, you are required to direct your home in that direction. If it's a biblical principle, you are required. This is a little harder because you're going to have to talk with your wife and work out, okay, what does this principle look like? How do we flesh it out? It's not just how you thought about it, how it was done in your home. Well, the biblical principle was fleshed out in my home when I was growing up in this way. Now, the principle can be fleshed out in a variety of ways, but you have no choice. You have to live men according to biblical principles, and you have to direct your home in that way. No choice. You can't say, well, my kids can do stuff that's not biblical. No, they can't. Right? So, again, you are called to direct in that way, and your home is called to respond to you, your wife and your children in that way. I think your wife and your children respond in the same way. Now, in matters of practical necessity, where a joint decision is required, yes, men, you are to make that final decision. And there's lots of those. All right, at the end of the day, where are we going to put our money? Where, you know, it's lots of practical things that require a joint decision. And yes, men, you are to decide. But understand this. You're not to decide what you think is the way to do that. You are to decide whatever is the best decision to make. And that might have been your wife's. I think we ought to do this. You're like, honey, I think we ought to do this. You talk it through. Her idea is a lot better than yours. So leadership means you make the final decision, but you make the best decision, not your decision. It's a huge difference in those things. But men, you are called to make those decisions, and ladies, you are called to respond. That's the authority that's there. Right now, oh, by the way, there are lots of matters that don't require a joint decision. Your wife doesn't need to call you when she's going to you know, change the diaper should I do that? Should I, you know, should, I, should I buy something for the home? Generally, you are designating that level of authority, and simply she, she makes those choices. The Proverbs 31 woman, it does not seem like she got on the cell phone and said, hey, I'm buying and selling stuff, hubby, you know, every decision. He might have run that stuff by her. Who knows? But he, she had a ton of autonomy when it came to those things. So every decision does not require a joint decision. Now, what may the husband not command? Where does, a, where does a wife not have to follow, as it were, if he commands sin? 
wife is not required to do anything sinful or join her husband to do anything that's sinful. Honey, I'm not going to church and neither are you. Sorry, babe. I love you. Maybe babe's the wrong word. Sorry, dearest one. I'm going to go to church. I love you. I care for you. That's wrong. I can't do that. I'm not following you there. No responsibility to follow him in sin. Additionally, the husband does not have the right to command. This is so important. He does not have the right. See, people take, it says, as the church is subject to Christ, so a wife is subject to her husband in everything. What's the in everything? Christ is ontologically greater than every man or woman, so he can control in every area, including your person. You are equal ontologically in being husbands with a wife, and you may not control her person. That's not up to you. Christ may, you may not. But it is fascinating that Christ doesn't do a lot of that directly. I mean, where does Christ tell you how many times you take a shower? What's, you know, exactly what you're supposed to wear. He doesn't do that. A man shouldn't either. In ma- oh, most specifically, though, in matters of personal conscience. That is where Scripture doesn't command or biblical principle isn't required. A woman is to be allowed to live her conscience, and men, you do not dictate her conscience. Ever. Right? You might talk about things, might reinform conscience, do all that, but a woman may and must be able to live out her conscience in things that, that conscience is, things not biblically commanded, not, in biblical, not a direct biblical principle. She's allowed to live according to conscience. And men, if you try to dominate that, you're a manipulative, controlling, domineering man. You don't dictate your wife's conscience. Different, by the way, than the children. Guess what? You, mom and dad, dictate your parent, your kid's conscience. That is, they might sing this or think that, they are required to, to live according to the dictates of your conscience. But men, that's not true for your wife. She lives according to her conscience. Additionally, not a matter of personal, personal conduct, how she grooms herself, how she spends her personal time directly. Well, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you better, you better look just like this. You can weigh in on that, men. Oftentimes, women will say, hey, what do you want? But you may not dictate to her her personal hygiene habits. Who would even think of that? But guess what? Men do. Men do. Everything has to be the way I want it. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't give you that kind of authority over someone's person. A wife is not your slave. So you don't own her. She's equal with you. You have authority. It's real authority, and you had best observe it. And ladies, you are to respond. But there are areas you don't have authority, and you may not exercise them. It's not according to his own personal desire. And you don't exercise your authority on the basis of just what you want. We've already said this, right? You, in general matters, her, certainly your wife holds just as much opinion, uh, weight as, as you do. She would like to do this. You would like to do this. Who, who should you give the greater weight? Well, it ought to be your wife. And then not assuming that your judgment is always best. The husband doesn't have the final say because men generally have better ideas and are smarter than their wives. This is manifestly not the case. Look at your wife and say, you're right, hon. Oftentimes, you're smarter and better than me. That's not always true, but you don't make those decisions because you have the better ability. And then a final thought here, well, two, I guess. You, when a husband makes this final decision, he doesn't demand full agreement. That is, he doesn't require that the wife say, I agree that what you're doing is best. That is domination and control. The wife could say, you know what, hon, I don't think that's best. But she is required then at that point, when it's these other biblical principle things, she's required to say, I yield and I will willingly walk with you. We'll talk about this in submission. I will willingly walk with you, but I don't agree that it's best. And she doesn't withhold that because Chris said, I could you know, not think what my husband is best. So every time he says something and I don't agree, if he is right, admit it, own it, yield, right? Men do the same. If your wife is right, 
yield and lead in the direction of the best idea. But there are times, man, if you try to dominate your wife, no, you got to say I'm right. You have to agree with me. Let me show you. And when you agree, that's actual submission. That's dominating control. And you may not lead that way. She might eventually agree with you. She might say, what? I never agreed with you. And it might point out that she was right and you were dead wrong. Right? But she willingly followed you. That's why this is such a serious thing, man. Because in those things, your wife is going to come along. And then lastly, not without careful consultation. Yeah, the husband bears the final decision, but he doesn't decide according to what he wanted in the first place. After all the information and his wife's input has been weighed, he leads in the direction of the best course of action. So, man, this is a, this is a challenging responsibility. And as, as we come to the communion table, perhaps there will be some tears as we consider the ways that we have not lived up to these things. But as the music team and men who are going to serve communion come forward... I just want to remind you that there's also joy for Christian men to know that Christ has granted you desire and ability to live these things out. There ought to be rejoicing. Because in his sacrifice, he came to overcome your sin. He came, not that you would have, if you live up just the perfect manhood, then Christ has died for you. No, he has made this provision for you and for women, of course, in spite of our failures. And that's what we come to rejoice in. So both men and women this morning as we consider what Jesus has done to to die, to take our penalty, to enable us to enter into a right relationship with him, might there be the proper examination? Am I living in light of the sacrifice in ways that are pleasing? But might there be an understanding that it wasn't your pleasingness that brought this? It was your your lack of pleasingness. It was your lack of, of ability that brought the sacrifice, and so we rejoice We're not earning anything here this morning by being godly men. We're rejoicing and delighting in the sacrifice made for us so that we can express the character of the one who made this provision on our behalf. And might there be a measure of a a delight in what Christ has done as we we take this, this sacrament. Please stand and we'll sing to prepare our hearts.